ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. What can the addictive, nicotine-soaked Russian version of the cigarette, the paparosa, tell us about the sensory, medical, social, and cultural history of Russia in the 19th century? According to Trisha Stark's new book, Smoking Under the Tsars, the paparosa can tell us quite a lot. Starks uncovers the fundamental role tobacco smoking played in empire, mass production and consumption, labor, gender ideals, as well as serving as both an act of liberation and an object of moral and medical panic. Through the paparosa, we can get a glimpse of how Russian smokers experienced, understood, and presented their habit in all its biological, psychological, social, and sensory inflections. Trisha Starks is an associate professor of history at the University of Arkansas, where she teaches and researches the intersection of culture and public health in the Russian and Soviet context. She's the author of The Body Soviet, Hygiene, Propaganda, and the Revolutionary State, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2008. Her new book is Smoking Under the Tsars, A History of Tobacco in an Imperial Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Here's Trisha Starks. I thought we'd start our discussion today of your new book on um, smoking with the Tsars uh, to talk about what are the origins of tobacco and smoking in Russia? Well, the, uh, the first records we have of tobacco smoking in Russia come from the 1600s and are really associated with the long ban that uh, occurred in Russia for tobacco sales and use. Some 70 years until it was overturned by Peter the Great, the Russians denied entry of tobacco. And it's the longest ban in the world for tobacco use in this early period. And it is accompanied by some truly draconian, nasty punishments, slitting of nostrils, uh, use of the knout, so so terrible that they become infamous in other tobacco histories. And so every time I'd open a tobacco history, there would be the stories of Russia and what she had done and how she had thwarted the tobacco trade in the 17th century. And so we're, we're notorious in all sorts of different fields of history that I never even knew we'd made encroachment into. And so that was, it, it kind of sparked my interest into how Russians could have this ban and yet be such amazing smokers when I first journeyed there in the 1980s and 90s. And so it's really kind of spawned an interest that's been ongoing. And so when did, um, so they, they banned it, why did they ban tobacco? They banned it, uh, it many countries were worried about it as a, a kind of danger, as an intoxicant, as a new product, just as we saw uh, many other new products coming in from the new world that were seen as somewhat dangerous or morally reprehensible. But in most countries, tobacco overcame that because it was lucrative. But in Russia, it's not lucrative. <laughs> it doesn't have that same early economic uh, draw that we see in other markets. And so the medical and moral arguments against it hold sway for a lot longer. And uh, what about smoking? When did people start smoking tobacco in, in Russia? What's the background for that? It, it's the same in those early years. They uh, 
there is a church scandal where two monks are caught drinking tobacco. And this was early terminology for smoking because you, you, you pulled in the smoke as if you were drinking it. And it defiled the church, defiled their bodies. It was very much a worry about how this was a, a, an incense not to God, but a scent that was carrying prayers down to Satan. And so it has all of these, these horrific uh, connotations to it. Uh, but those are our earliest records are kind of these uh, records of aversion rather than attraction to tobacco. And so that's how Russia first appears in the tobacco record or first um, has tobacco appear in her record as a, a story of things that we hate and why we hate them. And so it's, a, it's somewhat different. Right. And, and of course, but one of the things you talk about is that tobacco begins to be grown in Russia. It's not just imported. So, and there's a particular type of Russian tobacco that it seems to be lots of people um, from Europe who are, who are confronted or get access to Russian tobacco. They seem to be quite enamored with it. So when did Russia start growing it and what kind of tobacco do they produce that makes it so good? I don't know if good, okay. uh, <laughs> different, distinctive, um, really intoxicating. Uh, the, the Russians uh, began tobacco in around the same period, but the tobacco that they grow is of far lower quality, according to all outsiders. It's uh, Even Catherine the Great talks about how the tobacco that they grow during her period is fit only for the common people. Uh, and that it's not really of high enough quality in terms of either leaf or the later production of it. But in the 19th century, they start to really seriously look into how they can create a sustainable Russian agricultural tradition for tobacco. And we see, especially the Ministry of Finance, they're importing and distributing American seed, trying to get a crop that grows within Russia, moving it into temperate regions like Crimea, where they start to produce a very fine quality leaf. But that fine quality leaf is in contrast to a domestic leaf that has been going on in Ukraine for some time. And that leaf is what we call uh, Nikatiana rustica. There's two types of tobacco, really two major types of tobacco that are domesticated. One, rustica, which is the new world tobacco. It's really strong. And then tobaccum, which is more what we think of in terms of Virginia leaf, a lighter um, smoother, sweeter quality leaf. But for Russians, it's that rustica that takes off and comes to be known in Russian parlance as mohorka. And Russian mohorka is strong, about twice the level of nicotine, and the scent is remarked upon as being <laughs> very different and very strong. It can even, in some cases, be hallucinogenic because it's such a strong amount of nicotine. And so that Russian unique leaf, that Ukrainian leaf, really makes for a remarkable, unique, different smoking experience. Now, now your history of tobacco, which takes place mostly in the 19th century, uh, focuses on the paparossi, which is a, a very um, specific Russian cigarette. Uh, why do you focus on the paparosa as opposed to, say, a pipe or other forms of smoking tobacco? Uh, and, and why on the cig this cigarette? There are some wonderful ways to use tobacco. And Russians, the, the first type that really takes off for them is snuff. But it's just only for the very highest, you know, the 1% are into the snuff. And I'm, I'm more interested in the 99 and that 99 doesn't really start to use tobacco in profusion until we have the peperosi. And that's when you can start talking about mass consumption and mass production and popular use, which also finally leads to the thing that historians most need, massive amounts of records so that you can talk about 
what tobacco meant in all of these different areas. Until you have mass use, you don't have the mass response to lead to large numbers of medical literature, large amounts of popular literature, popular depictions and art and posters and all the things that really help you get to those those delicate, tender spots of culture that uh, that really kind of make you feel like you're there. And that's what I wanted was that that mass of records. Right. So what is this cigarette, this Russian cigarette? The Peperosi is a different kind of consumption of tobacco than anywhere else. It's a small, oh, kind of tissue-wrapped amount of leaf that is affixed to a hollow cardboard tube. And that tissue-wrapped leaf is different kinds of blends, but what makes a truly Russian peperosa is when it's that technology of intake combined with the Russian leaf or the mohorka. And so once you have that strong mohorka affixed to the peperosi style, that's when you have a Russian style cigarette. And that's what really takes off for the lower classes. That's the affordable style of smoke that really takes hold in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah. And it's a quick smoke. It's not, uh, from your descriptions, it's like like almost like three inhales or something? <laughs> yeah. Or it- yeah. Three to six inhales. Depends on how how manly your inhale is. Uh, but it's a, it's a quick smoke. And that quickness, that ease of use, it's you know, pipes can break. It also takes a certain, you have to keep your pipe tobacco in a certain uh, level of moisture yet dryness so that it burns right, but not too fast. It, it, it takes a lot of upkeep to have a pipe, but a peperosa, they're available on the street. There are women that are rolling them and homeless children that are selling them. They're everywhere. And so you can just buy a few loose ones. You can buy a pack. They're, they're easily accessible and they're quick. You can have one on the walk. You can have one at, at the, the tavern. You can have one on the shop floor in between shifts. It was in, in pace with the modern world. It was in pace with the, the modern city. And so it became part of this, this, this quicker lifestyle of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The, uh, the other thing that's important to remember about uh, the uptick in use of Piperosi is that smoking allows for a more addictive interface with tobacco. And so when you inhale tobacco, the nicotine comes to you a lot faster. And with later technologies, it can come even faster. If you add ammonia, it kind of becomes like freebasing. And so it's not just quicker in in pace of the modern life. It's also quicker in how it delivers the drug. And that can really change the way a person interacts with a product. And, And so that... That's a, a, a side point, but one that I think is very important in understanding how tobacco takes hold. That it's not just it's not just a signifier. It's not just something that you use. It also uses you. It, beca- it, it you you become a host for this addictive to behavior, and you play it out through your day, through your shortened life, <laughs> through all of these things. And so it's a it's a back and forth between body and thing that's that's different than with other products. So I, I find it really interesting because you, you discuss so many different aspects of what tobacco symbolized. And one of the things that you start out with is a discussion of empire. And you write that the paparossi were products of empire and producers of empire. Um, what do you mean by that? It's a, it, it is, a, it, I think, an evocative phrase that gets at the heart of how tobacco requires, or a tobacco product like a peperosa requires input from all sorts of different industries and people and technologies. And for a, a, a smooth yet strong, good burn with nice mouthfeel, for a good smoke, you need to have not just good leaf, which is usually a blend of leaf from 
in the case of Russia, it's going to come from Crimea, from the Caucasus, from Ukraine, from Kuban. It's, it's going to come from all over. And then you also have to flavor it. You have to sauce it with flavors that come not just usually from the Russian Empire, but even areas beyond. So exotic woods like sassafras, exotic flavors like clove and kabibi, which are these little berries. I mean, just all over the globe, you get these different flavors. But another one that's very Russian is you get all of the perfume flavors. So civet and musk and all of these um, kind of uh, glandular secretions of tiny furry animals that lend their flavor and scent to perfume also become integral to the, the flavoring and scenting of tobacco. So you have those kind of imperial concerns in terms of just broadening the horizons of the people by understanding the the, uh, the integration of different products into your Piperosi. But as you do that, you also have to secure your markets. You have to secure the edges of empire to bring these products into your Peperosi. And so in areas like Crimea or Central Asia, where, where you're um, having um, conflicts with other countries, you're also seeing those conflicts play in the way that the tobacco industry fluxes and moves so that sometimes your favorite brand might not be available because they're having problems getting the leaf or it might change in taste. And if you're a, a sophisticated tobacco user, you're supposed to understand those changes and feel those changes and taste them. And you read about them in the paper. And so your peperosa becomes also an experience of the political aspects of empire. And then two, you see it played out in the image of who smokes. And so the, the largest smoking community in the earliest days, indeed the, the first guy to tip out the, um, you know, the foreign blend tobacco from his uh, peperosa and add in Russian mohorka, these are soldiers. And soldiers have an entire image set up with use of tobacco that's taken up by literateurs, that is taken up by uh, advertisers, that is taken up and used within military ceremony itself and used by the czar. It's Everybody has this militaristic association of real soldiers smoke and real soldiers in Russia in the 19th century are involved in empire. And one cross-pollinates the other so that you're starting to talk about, you know, Gogol writing of Taras Bulba and his pipe, and but also you've got Nadezhda Durova posing with the a cigarette or no with uh, tobacco products as showing her being a real soldier you've got these images of soldier smoking used as advertising it just goes back and forth and becomes this this uh, reifying atmosphere of tobacco is empire and your empire is made of tobacco is there a, another discourse in of course Related to that, where you know, in a lot of American advertising and and concepts of masculinity for American smokers and cigarettes is the frontier, and also this kind of rugged, the rugged individual out in the frontier, facing off nature or surviving in nature. Do does is there a similar discourse in in Russian smoking culture? I think so. I think that that idea of using frontier and, and that kind of the untrammeled area that you see in American depictions of smoking, where they have either the Marlboro Man or, of course, the ubiquitous cigar store Indian, the, 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 the carved wooden figure that welcomed one, that you even see in some Russian markets, they'll use that as a way to bring people into a, a, a tobacco store, that that there is that idea of tobacco is associated with frontiers of manliness where men go to prove their metal, so to speak. And it, we'll see that playing out not just in 19th century Russia, but even into 20th century Russia, where later um, tobacco products are named things like 
Oh, well, of course, Belomor Canal or the, the, uh, the idea of Sever or Cosmos. I smoked Cosmos. Oh. I mean, there, there are all of these, these different ideas of where men can be men. But nowhere have I seen, and I've looked at a lot of, of advertising from different areas, the, the same strong association of military men. You do see military men used in advertising elsewhere, but usually around wartime. In Russia, it's it's an ongoing thing through the 19th century, and perhaps because they're having a lot of military actions where it's an ongoing issue for the tobacco industry. It's at the top of their minds about keeping sourcing of leaf, but you also just see they use especially the Cossack as this image of, or, you know, even going back to the Bogatir, but it's always these men who are battling on the edges of Russian civilization, kind of right on the edge of civilization. So that also has that, that lovely connotation of freedom. You know, you're just outside of the, the thrall and the, the power of the state. And that's where you can really have a good smoke as a, and be you know, free and manly and brave and smoking and, and enjoying it and enjoying it in the company of men as one should. And so you have all of those things move together. And that idea is there from you know, Gogol with Taras Bulba and move forward into the late 19th century when we see all these different cigarette brands using the same imagery of manly men smoking in military uniform. Now, one of the things, though, that's really one of the ironies of this story in terms of gender is that, as you, as you rightly point out, smoking is associated with all sorts of forms of masculinity. But you point out that in Russia, its production is mostly done by women. Actual, the women themselves are doing the labor. And then also some of these uh, big tobacco companies, cigarette companies are also owned by women. So talk about that other aspect of women's role in the history of tobacco in Russia. Ah, the tobacco queens. Uh, <laughs> the tobacco queens and the, the, the tobacco workers. It's a, it's a wonderful juxtaposition of this this strength that Russian women have economically, uh, their their allowance to have property after marriage, but also to inherit in the way that Shaposhnikova does, so that she inherits from her husband and takes over and becomes one of the, the largest tobacco manufacturers in Russia and becomes the head of this tobacco trust that starts off later in Russia than you see tobacco trusts in the rest of the world, but still this um, a vertical integration of all aspects of tobacco production. So she is not just the owner of her tobacco factory, but she also has paper factories. She starts off one of the, the Russian engineers in his own machine shop so that he can make special machines for making just Russian peperosi. She She is multifaceted and involved in so many aspects, very intimately involved, according to some of the discussions, very um, fully involved in understanding her blends, understanding manufacture, understanding sourcing. And these women have this immense power that you don't see elsewhere in the world. But on the flip side of that, you also see this very typical story of women's life on the factory floor, that tobacco work is, it's low skill. It's something that's seen as available to women and children. And if it's available to women and children, of course, you need to hire them because you can pay them so much less. And so as you can do that, you see this, this explosion in the number of women, because you know, elsewhere in the world, you had the story of the, the Banzak machine and mechanization of tobacco. And that's what spurs its explosion as product in the, the West. But in Russia, labor's so cheap that they explode production by just adding more and more women and children. Are, the, are, women, also, are women also harvesting tobacco? It, as, far as, um, as far as I know, that's, I have to say harvest and agriculture is something there was not 
there was not as much information on in the general tobacco histories. And I probably should have gone into agricultural histories to look for that. But instead, you know, I was looking at when I was reading tobacco histories by Russians at the time, they were entranced by the factory system. You know, even Lenin talks about the factory system and these early tobacco entrepreneurs because they are able to rise from nothing to something to much more than anything in such a short amount of time through what seems like, you know, even uh, Trotsky calls them later, the trifles, the cigarette butts and such. This is how people are rising is through these trifles through they're often diversified stores where they sell a few combs and some pomade and tobacco products. And they become these, these, you know, captains of industry by selling something that seems such a uh, a, a little aspect of life. So women are engaging. I mean, you know, you have these women who are in charge of these large tobacco firms, but you also have women engaging in the processing and the rolling of tobacco in the cigarette, in the paparossi, and then of course selling it on the streets as well. <laughs> yes, and and being sold as uh, you know, women are at all of these aspects. There, they're they're in charge of the factories. They're producing and processing. They're rolling and selling. Their bodies are being used as enticement and advertisement. And then they themselves are also smokers. It's it's a, a fairly sex sells in lots of markets, and women are rolling in lots of markets. But these other aspects are unique to the Russian, and I'm talking with my hands a lot, these other aspects are unique to what's going on in Russia. And the, 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 they lend themselves to this rather unusual or unexpected volatility within the female workforce that is partially because of, of course, the context of increased worker radicalization that we see in Russia, especially in the 1890s, but also because these women are experiencing a different tobacco work experience than you have in the West, than you have in uh, uh, the areas of um, Bulgaria or that you have within the areas of the Mediterranean. They are generally much... um, they're they're usually older workers. They're usually more literate. They're usually urban born rather than new imports. And so, even though it's low skilled, these tend to be women in the workforce who are more likely to be conscious or to have ties to men in shops, as we'll see in areas like Rostov, where the female tobacco workers have ties to male railroad workers. And so, they are angry and active female workers. And and, and so it's not exactly what one would expect. There are some female strike actions that are quite violent and are met by equal violence from the state. Um, (laughs) Yes. And so it's, it's the, the, the female story and the labor story are, not just unique because of this feminine contingent, but because of the ways that they interact with the Russian environment. And you either have female ownership or you have female volatility, but it, it's it's because of where they are that they're able to voice or to act in ways that are different than the general tobacco story. And and is there a uh, in some of the kind of negative reactions against tobacco and smoking in Russia? Does it also include this? You're you know destroying women's femininity. You're destroying families. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Do do does the gender aspect also get incorporated into the the combating against tobacco smoking? Yes, the it, that's an excellent uh, question and an excellent approach to how y- the conscious middle class and the the objectors to the status of workers' conditions within Russia could use the female workforce as a bludgeon and talk about 
especially their production of tobacco, as being dangerous to their health and dangerous to the nation. And they would fixate on how female contact with nicotine would lead to miscarriage, would lead to um, lowered birth rates, would lead to generally lowered health rates for them and their children, and how the smoker poisoned not just themselves, but was complicit in an industry that poisoned an entire generation. And so it's it's not secondhand smoke. It's, I, I don't know, secondhand uh, labor uh, exploitation, your secondhand exploiter in the uh, path of the female worker and the child worker. Yeah. I want to ask also about children because one of the things that struck me to my 21st century, uh, you know, consciousness is that you have a lot of images in advertising actually of children smoking. Uh, and you already mentioned children in the factory, children selling cigarettes on the street, but also these images of children smoking. So how does the the child figure into all of this as well? Well, definitely we have, yes, the, the child worker who, and the, the child, uh, the, the kind of the scamp on the street who pilfers a few cigarettes and uses them. But there's also this image that grows up and it will have remarkably long legs of tobacco being the gateway into manhood. And so a child smoking, almost always shown as a boy, but a few rare images of girls, a a boy smoking is a young man, a young boy trying to emulate his father or emulate his um, heroes. And so it doesn't have the same connotations of danger that we think of today. It's indeed, it's hard to get away when we look at these images and you see them and you're just shocked, shocked to see this little boy smoking. And it's presented like a, a Hallmark card of uh, a Norman Rockwell, cute, sweet, nostalgic, uh, rosy tinged vision of a boy smoking it. Just it's, it's absolutely startling to, to see within our sensibilities, but that's one of the things that it's, hard to remember and is often lost within tobacco histories, especially is that the way we regard tobacco and the way they regarded tobacco is so very different because we have a sensory story about tobacco that's not just that it smells bad and it makes you smell bad and your breath smell bad and all these things. Our image of tobacco is, is tempered by our understanding of its connectivity to all of these horrific diseases that come from regular tobacco use. Um, you know, it was the, from the, the image of tobacco is the only product that's going to kill half of its users. That it's, it's just not something that they had to contend with, nor did they even think it was addictive. They just saw it as something that you could, that was a, you could throw away if you were done with it. It wasn't like opium. It wasn't even like drink. Those were addictive. Those were things that you had withdrawal symptoms, but they didn't recognize withdrawal from tobacco. And so to see a boy smoking was not, it was just a, it was just a little lark and he could put it down if he wanted to. And now we know that kids start smoking, they don't stop. And that's where our center is of trying to stop smoking before it starts. But at the time, Oh, it was it was a, a cute little attempt to be. It was like it was like putting on daddy's jacket. It was just uh, trying to look like dad in his hat and shoes. It's it doesn't have the same story of danger. No, your your history your history of of tobacco is part of a a, a new developing literature of historical studies looking at the senses and history. Like how did how did people feel? And, and have what was their sensory experience at a particular historical moment? Um, and so what as a con, you know you're contributing to this literature, and you mentioned this before about when we were, you were talking about empire, how through the taste of the tobacco, you are supposed to be able to get a sense of the imperial struggles and wars and peripheral wars if you're really a tuned smoker. So what do the smells and tastes of tobacco 
tell us about, say, 19th century Russian society? There are that can go into a number of levels. The, the the sensory experience. I mean, there's the most basic idea of the sensory experience and difference is knowing just um, the the technological status of Russian industry. So, are the papers good? Is the leaf good? Is the is the glue intruding on the taste? Is it a new product? Some of the new products were made without glue, and they'd advertise that as without glue, so that you wouldn't have that taste of glue or perhaps the contamination of it. And so, is it made by a machine? Machine ones that weren't touched by human hands. That was another advertising feature of how the technology could temper just the actual manufacturer, and that manufacturer could impact impact your taste and how it felt, how it burned the mouth feel of a cigarette, how it filled up the palate to have that smoke, whether it it um, crackled a lot or didn't crackle a lot, what color of ash it had. All of these things were part of the technology of it. But then also there's this move into how taste has both an aesthetic or a gustatory kind of uh, the, the, the taste and what that meant to you as an individual, and then also taste as a sign of status, that you can use taste in a number of different ways. Does this man have taste? And does this cigarette, how does it taste? And so getting into those two things and how they interact, I think reveals so much about civil discourse in the late 19th and early 20th century. And it shows how social and consumption practice interact and how consumption can allow how allow you to create identities and so taste in that regard what you taste and how a cigarette tastes whether it's like the the dessert naya which I assume was a rather sweet cigarette, or whether it was brome, which I, I assume was a harsh and strong cigarette, whether it was a manly smoke or a feminine smoke, what the taste of it was could also be indications of who you were as an individual. Were you an elite? Were you a feminine smoker? Were you a male smoker? Were you a dandy smoker kind of in between there? And it was something that was available for cultivation by both lower and upper classes that you could, because cigarettes were so affordable and, you know, there were lowest iterations that were affordable to all. Then there were higher priced ones where you could delineate yourself. You could start talking about taste, even if you were in the lower portions and buying the cheaper types of tobacco. And so it allowed for differentiation, allowed for a consumer society, a space for talking about class delineation that was outside of some of these more dangerous areas for that pursuit, the more political areas for that pursuit. Right. Hmm. Is this what you mean by, by, because another, along these lines, you also have this interesting line where users through the consumption of tobacco and the marketing of it too, which is a, a very fascinating uh, aspect. All of these images are, the advertisements are incredibly beautiful. And I really appreciate that your book has them in color so we can see the vibrancy of them. Um, you write that users could taste, smell, see, and feel the modern in the product. And marketers told them how to explain that change. And, and in a way, you know, based on what you just said previously too, through this sensory experience, you can get an idea of the the creation of a mass society in Russia as it as identities become fractured, as the old class, you know, Soslovia system breaks down and doesn't fit with changes in social and economic processes. Um, so 
Talk about this relationship to the modern, which I find really interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, thank you. I, I'm very happy with Cornell and how they, they took care of those visuals. I, my little babies, I, I collected those over years and uh, I've been uh, lovingly uh, working with them and getting them all pretty and they did a magnificent job. And if um, anybody who ends up with the, the e-reader, you can expand the sizes of the visuals and they're just fantastic. So I'm very pleased with that. But I like the way that marketers often talk about how how a person should experience their tobacco and they talk about these those, those simple things like those technology changes of these are machine made or these are made uh, these are clean made or white made or they 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 talk about the the pristine nature kind of those essences of purity and danger that we see in other aspects of modern marketing of how one becomes clean versus the dirty past. But they also invest tobacco products with these markers of history, these markers of knowledge that allow a tobacco user to feel like they're in the know. So there's, especially there's this a writer of doggerel named Uncle Mikey, who writes all of these little jingles and little poems about tobacco. And he does a lot of tobacco poems that place tobacco and place Peperosi within Russian history or within the world and play upon the knowledge of the user to make them feel like they're a sophisticate. So they're sophisticated if they use Uncle Mikey's product where he talks about its relationship to Peter the Great and how Peter the Great smoked. Well, now you're kind of like Peter the Great because you are also smoking and you're even you know, better than your fellows because you can bring out at the tavern next this little tidbit about, hey, did you know? that Peter the Great smoked uh, Dutch tobacco and, you know, we're smoking this tobacco. And so you could be an educated consumer, even if all you did was read the newspaper and got these little bits of doggerel, which were also fun and, you know, rhyming and clever. And so they, they were something that you could then deploy in conversation. So marketing could become an infectious part of even the minor daily. Um, and, and so you see these, these horrific uh, commentaries like um, there's one about Trezvan, 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 you can buy them by the wagon. I mean, it just, you know, they're, they're just, they're so cheap and, and uh, there are so many words. Um, and they are so cheap and poorly made that everyone makes a joke of them, but everyone smokes them. And especially like Trezvan then becomes like a, a symbol of the revolutionary because they're so bad, they must be what working class people would smoke. <laughs> and so you have these embourgeois revolutionaries who are trying to be like the working class. And so taste can become both something that signifies your belonging to an upper strata, but also a way for you to try and meld yourself with the lower strata. And of course, workers themselves talk about how they emerge from the stench of tobacco from the lower classes and try and become less like that. And so the the smell of tobacco and its taste and how this reflects upon your status, but also your your, your place within society and how it allows you to be in certain groups or identify with others. It's, it's such a complex language that was, I think unexpected, or at least it was unexpected for me. I know that not everybody has been thinking about tobacco for over a decade, but for the, for me, I was like, I did not think there would be this much to it. I just didn't expect to keep finding more and more. And that's, in fact, one of one of the readers of the manuscript, uh, Allison Smith, and she said, you know. I didn't expect for there to be more to say after you had this chapter on health danger. And yet here we are, there's more to say. And I do think it's, it's interesting stuff to say. It's not just me sitting there going, Oh, I've got all this research. I got to get rid of it. It was, it was, I thought spoke to all of these things about 
the interplay of different intellectual traditions, um, how there's Chekhov making jokes about tobacco and there's Tolstoy railing against tobacco and there is um, Dostoevsky just including random little bits about Raskolnikov not liking how the inspector smoked in front of him. They're just all of these languages of tobacco that were lurking underneath the surface of all these different areas of Russian society and culture in this period. It just, it, it, it saturated the period. And just in a way that I think for anyone that was there in the 90s, when, when we were there, it, it's not quite the same now. The, the Putin's anti-smoking programs have had an enormous effect. There's been like a 20% drop in smoking in the last five years. But before that, it was everywhere. And, and so that's that feel that I had in the, the 80s and 90s that I did not expect to find 100 years earlier. This, all of this, these various like ways of articulating identity through smoking and tobacco, do you also, and this, this goes to uh, another issue that smoking, the act of smoking is associated with in the late 19th and early 20th century is a sense of trying to get grips on a perception that of social uh, degeneration, that society is changing so rapidly that that there's a certain, um, you know, the values and that and the family structures and institutions that are based the foundations of Russian society are, you know, breaking apart. So how, how does smoking fit into this, this concept of degeneration in this period? We've been talking thus far about you know, smoking as kind of this, this liberating object, and, and tobacco is something that can create. But you're right. Tobacco is also a source of destruction, even, again, in this period when they don't have a, a clear handle on the health effects they still regard the entire prospect uh, project with anxiety. And, you know, this age of anxiety idea that there is, even as people are creating, there are these worries that they are somehow hiding their true identities. They're creating new identities that are hiding who they really are. That in the, the city, there's an anonymity that allows us to freely move and be liberated from our past, yet also it is that past that gives safety in any kind of interactions with others. And so the past is both a thing that gives structure and also is a cage. And so the same with tobacco, that it plays with those two ideas of something that you can use and become something else, but also something that others can use and might be bringing seeds of destruction. And that's definitely what we see with Tolstoy's massive essay on stupefaction and the use of stupefying substances. And the fact that he is so angry at tobacco was, again, something I did not expect. It's something that if you read anti-tobacco works now that, that are popular in Russia now, they often will reference Tolstoy. And anti-tobacco works in the 20s and 30s would often reference Tolstoy. But the extent to which he saw tobacco as dangerous was not something I expected, that he saw tobacco as more dangerous than other stupefying substances, that it was the worst because it it was the thing that took you over the edge. Drink wasn't enough. Tobacco would do it. Tobacco would put you to that point of moral turpitude where you no longer cared. And perhaps it, just, perhaps it was because of his own personal history of how tobacco was the hardest thing for him to give up, supposedly, according to his son. But it, it, you know, it, it was something that played into this worries about how even if it wasn't that dangerous to you physically, how it enslaved you to another, how it became something that you were willing to give up food for your family so as to afford tobacco, or that you were willing to, to risk your, your um, scent and style in order to have tobacco, that this might be somehow taking over from yourself. But but they didn't understand it or see it as addictive? 
No. And that's, it was only weak men who could not give up their tobacco. A, a strong enough man who indulged with balance could use tobacco easily. But what that balance was depended on the, the source. So some of them thought that that was like two to three peperosi a day. Some said that it was a pack and a half or two, which that seems a little extreme to me. But there was this, there's so much debate and there's no foundational thing aside from the fact that you can use nicotine to, to kill you can use nicotine, you know, the, you can have a cap full of nicotine is enough to kill the horse. That is an ongoing slogan that you hear all the way through the Soviet period that, and they, they kill a lot of animals and demonstrations to show that you can do this with nicotine. But then it's the obverse, you have these men going, well, you know, it would kill a horse, but I've had a pax and I'm fine. So I must be stronger than a horse. And so there's no, there's no established um, way to interpret this medical knowledge. And so you have a lot of back and forth of it. And there's no established way to look at the moral issue. Tolstoy may say it's this, but others see tobacco as liberating. Um, you know, it, it, uh, Chekhov has it, several uh, pieces where he talks about the dangers of tobacco, but he does it in a tragic comic Chekhovian way. So you don't quite know whether he's making fun of the person or the tobacco or the use. And so th th there's a lot of mixed message going on. And so even though there's this worry that it might be a, a, a point for social degeneration, it doesn't quite take root in the same way that we see uh, taking root elsewhere. It does provide a seed for understanding of tobacco that's going to take care, uh, take take off after the revolution that we'll see with um, Pavlovian reflexology and a lot more emphasis on nervousness. But compared to the problems with drink or compared to the perceived problems with opium, tobacco just doesn't have the same feeling of, of, of societal disruption. Indeed, you know, tobacco use just doesn't have the same, a, a, a tobacco addict does not have the same social attack that you see with somebody who's an alcoholic or a, a drunkard in the period and how they can have all of these disruptive influences because the, the tobacco use seems somewhat um, containable. And so what did they understand about the health risks? To a certain extent, they saw it as uh, problematic for, as, as bundled into the problems of neurasthenia, that it was a nervous disorder, that it could create seeds for further nervous disorder, and these could manifest in digestive problems, could manifest in problems with um, breathing and also in sexual debility. And so it, it, it became, but everything led to neurasthenia. Neurasthenia was just, it was, if somebody had a problem, it was neurasthenia. And where did it come from? Well, whatever you did last is really kind of, and so it, it's, it's such a, it's so omnipresent as a, as a, a um, vector for neurasthenic disease that if if not if it becomes less usable as a diagnostic because if you have 15 friends that smoke and one is a neurasthenic it just loses its ability to be a a boogeyman it, it, the smoking is no longer an effective way uh, or neurasthenia is no longer an effective way to discourage smoking when it just seems like well everybody's got that uh, and so it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have that resonance, even though that's, that seems more like it's an issue of this is what is the in vogue with medical authorities. So they kind of tack it on rather than this is really what they're seeing with tobacco use. Yeah. I guess the modern day equivalent of uh, neurasthenia is irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm celiac disease. Yes, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that it's a, 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 oh, well, have you tried giving this up? Okay. Well, now you feel better. Um, it, so it's, 
and and I'm I'm certain that people that gave up smoking felt better. But at the time, they just and there's also so many other things that are probably going on in your health environment in the period that smoking may not have been the top of the list of things that are going wrong with you. Now, you end your story in 1917, um, which now I, I, of course, after reading the book, I understand because you already have a lot to talk about before the revolution. But, but what happens to the fate of tobacco with the revolution? And here I'm speaking of just the, the cataclysm of, you know, World War I to the end of the Russian Civil War, because, you know, earlier you spoke about how all of these networks of, of growing tobacco and distributing tobacco were broken down when you have warfare. So here is a big period of that. So what happens with tobacco in this period? Uh, it, it, you're, you're right. The disruption is a, a big story of the World War I um, tobacco, uh, Russian tobacco chapter. It, it, with war, there are breakdowns in leaf. There are breakdowns, especially in paper. Uh, and getting paper, it, that's the ongoing story is that just the quality of paper and how how difficult it is to get paper makes for a lot of newsprint tobacco use, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Lenin will later Oh, archival documents. Archival yes. doc- I have I have evidence in the Comsmol archive of archival documents being used as paparos oh, for paparos. Oh no. Oh there are, <laughs> there are there are stories that Lenin is worried that they're taking all of the propaganda and rolling it up and using it for for tobacco. Uh, but so there's there's the problem of just getting tobacco. Yet at the same time, there is this massive uptick in smokers because they're sending tobacco to the front lines. Uh, and, and that's happening in most of, the, uh, most of the combatant countries because tobacco is so preferable as a ration than giving them alcohol. Because with the tobacco, you can still shoot straight. Of course, with tobacco, you also become a target. And so you have to have these special ways of holding your cigarette so that nobody can see the burning ember. But still, there's, there are more people smoking on the front lines. And so there's an upsurge in demand, even as there's problems getting it. And there are, um, it, you know, of course, it leads to price raises. It leads to anger within the the workforce as they're being asked to do more and more. And there is a real uh, kind of embedding at that point of the militaristic visual of the smoker, and also of it being part of what differentiates the good life from the bad is that when you can get tobacco, it's the good life. And, and so I, it, that's something that I'm playing with. I'm writing now the, the history of tobacco in the Soviet period. And this is one that's much more a, a that, that experience of deficit is very important to understanding how people find pleasure in tobacco. Um, and especially good tobacco, but also how they find pleasure in nostalgia and poor tobacco as it reminds them of the wartime experience of when we smoked oak leaves or when we smoked uh, the, the um, mohorka rather than uh, Turkish leaf. And so deficit becomes part of this, the story with the war, even as increased use means that more and more people can conceptualize what that deficit means. So the, 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 the habit becomes embedded even as it becomes more difficult to get hold of tobacco. And, and finally, um, taking tobacco and, and paparossi as commodities that had widespread uses, how do you see this history of tobacco uh, as a way to fit Russia within the context of these other global histories of commodities, right? You, in the last you know, decade or so, you've had books about salt and sugar and guns, et cetera, of these kind of global commodities that I think are related, you know, as you said, when we first started, issues of empire are completely in, in, involved with this. So how do, how do you fit Russia's experience with tobacco within this general globalization of commodities? Well, I, I definitely think it, it, you see it in terms of that that early imperial experience of how it's um, part of a, 
what uh, what's been called bioprospecting, looking for products that you can use in the global arena that would have value. And so how that value is extended into as the Russians move outward, they take tobacco seed with them as a, an, it's both an easy commodity and a hard one. It's, it's easy to grow. It grows in bad soil. It grows in lots of climactic conditions, but it's also labor intensive and somewhat the seed is delicate and difficult to work with. But it's something that it's, it's, you see in other global arenas as a, a green gold, something that's, you know, that you can, you can get a lot of money for with less investment than other types of product. And so it does fit into the, the global commodities history in that regard. It also is definitely part of this idea about the spread of consumer products. And that it, both extensification, you know, spread of consumer products, and also intensification, where you're adding value to a product by talking about its luxury and giving it these other aspects. But I also see it as a, a, a valuable addition to other global histories of tobacco in particular, because Russia's relationship to tobacco is so very unique, not just because of its uh, its over-addictive uh, paparossi and the, the different technology of its use, but also the, the, the people that are using it, the early use of it, they are using paparossi, they're using cigarettes at a higher percentage of um, total use earlier than really anywhere else in the world. And so this has stories for later addiction. And that addiction story, that medical story, is the one that continues onward and is, you know, they, they're, they battle for the top three of highest per capita consumption of tobacco in, in each global survey. And they definitely are dying at a massive rate because of it. And understanding that kind of unique nature of Russia's relationship to tobacco and smoking in the the past is, I think, this foundation for understanding how we deal with it today, because it isn't the same. It isn't the same story as everywhere else of mechanization and light tobaccos, and this is how it works, and it's marketing evil and using of uh, you know beautiful smoking and cinema that brings in new users. It's a it's much more wrapped up with Im- images of the nation, with images of masculinity and femininity. And, and then it becomes part of this, once it's part of the, the World War, it also becomes part of the revolutionary tradition and revolutionary smoke. And so when you think of these these different revolutionary types they're always they've always got a trezvan in hand they've always got some foul smelling unpleasant rank tobacco product in their hands except for of course lenin who's an avid anti-smoker but that's a that's beside the point but you have these back and forth images that are unique to russia and unique to her relationship to this product that i think are important for later understandings of how you fight it and at, at, yeah, at base, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm intoxicated by tobacco. I'm enthralled by this story, but I try not to forget. And it's something that I, I put in that introduction too. Is this is a devastating global epidemic? Uh, Proctor, who's written a history of global tobacco, calls it a golden holocaust. That's you know killed millions. And so it, it, it is as fascinating it is, it is, it's, it must always be remembered in the background of this is this is a very devastating story today. Um, it, it, that it is not just, you know, not just unpleasant, it, it, but it's, it, it's a story that's agonizing in its implications. So... That was Tricia Starks, an associate professor of history at the University of Arkansas, where she teaches and researches the intersection of culture and public health in the Russian and Soviet context. 
She's the author of The Body Soviet, Hygiene, Propaganda, and the Revolutionary State, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2008. Her new book is Smoking Under the Tsars, A History of Tobacco in Imperial Russia, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Exactly what it needs to get another jug of thunder, but an action, but it 